0: And good afternoon, everyone. I'm Diane Sykes from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, and it's my great privilege to welcome you here today to the Federalist Society Religious Liberties Practice Group panel discussion at the annual convention this year. Our topic today is the role of religion in public debate. University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone recently argued that the Supreme Court's decision in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, the partial birth abortion case, and the president's veto of legislation expanding federal funding for embryonic stem cell research represent the interjection of sectarian religious belief into matters of public morality. This sparked renewed debate over the role of religion in public discourse. Our panel this afternoon will discuss the place of religious language and ideas in public debate, including whether there are legitimate constitutional or philosophical limits to religious discourse in public debate, whether religious participants in public debate should be required to translate their views into publicly available reasoning, and whether there are non-theological, publicly available arguments in opposition to, for example, such matters as abortion, same-sex marriage, or embryonic stem cell research. To discuss this important topic this afternoon, we are privileged to be joined by four distinguished scholars in law and philosophy. Starting on the far right, your far left, Dr. James Skillen became executive director of the Center for Public Justice in 1981, and in 2000 became its president. The Center for Public Justice is a nonpartisan organization engaged in public policy development and civic education. Its work centers on doing justice from a Christian democratic perspective by recognizing different religions and points of view, and keeping the public square open to people of all or no faith the center is concerned with the subject of what should constitute a just political community. It explores the full scope of responsibility that belongs to citizens and all branches of government. Dr. Skillen received his BA in philosophy from Wheaton College, a divinity degree from the Westminster Theological Seminary, and an MA and PhD in political science from Duke University. Next to him, Professor Robert Audi is the David E. Gallo Professor of Business Ethics, Professor of Management, and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. He is author of many books and articles on ethics, epistemology, the theory of human action, and related areas. His most recent works include Moral Value and Human Diversity, An Introductory Treatment of Normative Ethics and the Theory of Value, with applications to business, education, government, and the media and Religious Commitment and Secular Reason, which offers a theory of the ethical basis of church-state separation and a theory of the relation between religion and politics. He has served as president of the American Philosophical Association Central Division, editor-in-chief of the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy, and editor of the Journal of Philosophical Research. He received his BA from Colgate University and his MA and PhD from the University of Michigan. On my left here, Uh, Next up is the Honorable Michael McConnell, known to many in this audience. He was appointed uh, by President George W. Bush to the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in 2002. Judge McConnell brought to the bench 17 years of scholarship and teaching in the field of constitutional law and related subjects at the University of Chicago Law School and later at the University of Utah. In addition to serving our nation as a circuit judge, Judge McConnell continues to teach part-time as presidential professor at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah and as a visiting professor at Harvard and Stanford Law Schools. Judge McConnell has written widely on the subjects of freedom of religion and constitutional history and theory. He is co-editor of Religion and the Law and Christian Perspectives on Legal Thought. Judge McConnell received his BA from Michigan State University and his JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He served as a law clerk to Chief Judge J. Skelly Wright on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and for Associate Justice William J. Brennan on on the United States Supreme Court. He has also served as an assistant general counsel in the Office of Management and Budget and as an assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States. And finally, Professor Kent Greenwald is university professor at Columbia University, where he teaches constitutional law and jurisprudence at Columbia Law School. He has taught at Princeton University and has been a visiting fellow at Cambridge and Oxford. His scholarship focuses on the areas of church and state, freedom of speech, civil disobedience, and criminal responsibility. He is the author of Religion and the Constitution, Volume One, Free Exercise and Fairness, does God Belong in Public Schools? Private Consciences and Public Reasons and Religious Convictions and public or Political Choice, excuse me. He received his BA from Swarthmore, a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Oxford and an LLB from Columbia Law School. He served as law clerk to Associate Justice John Marshall Harlan on the United States Supreme Court and as Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. Welcome to all of our panel members and we will begin with Dr. Skillen.
1: Thank you, Judd Sykes. Uh, It's an honor to be part of this uh, panel, uh, fellow panelists, uh, and to be with you on this important topic, however little time we have. The focus that I would like to give uh, in these opening remarks is the distinction between what I would call, uh, when we talk about religion, ways of worship, which usually get us connected with uh, thoughts about theology, (coughs) uh, ecclesiastical institutions, mosques, temples, etc. When we think about the theological language people uh, use, talk about God. And religion as a way of life or ways of life. Certainly, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam uh, are those kinds of religions. They have to do with the way people conduct a whole life. It has to do with the way they raise their children, the way they serve neighbors and the poor. It entails every institution of life and can't be easily isolated into what we associate with uh, particular uh, aspects of life. So to talk about religion and, in the sense of a distinguishable element that could be connected then with politics or education or leisure or something else, uh, starts with the assumption that it's an isolatable element, an institutional variable, whereas religion as a way of life, which is what it is for many people, uh, even when they don't think that it is, Uh, is something different now the constitutional protection of the free exercise of religion in the first amendment uh, neither defines religion that is it it isn't uh, referring just to church life or um, the uh, synagogue It, it isn't narrowly defined it's just religion and it doesn't uh, in any way constitutionally beyond the First Amendment or within it give the government the authority to define, to predefine religion. That is to say, if you do this, this, or this, or if you look like this, this, or this, well, then you're religious. And if you're not, well, then you're out. Uh, the free exercise, it seems to me, is a reference to people with responsibility to their God or not being free to exercise it. So where the question comes in really, uh, I think, especially has to do with these all these areas, whether it's education, welfare, a number of other places where, uh, in particular, the meaning of one's deepest convictions about how one ought to live before the face of God, equivalent to or at the same level of the deepest convictions that someone may have about how to live without reference to God. That is to say, it's at that level that these questions of how should we shape science policy and stem cell research? How should we approach and look at the unborn? uh, Those are not narrowly religious uh, matters and I don't think they can be uh, uh, excised from public debate or somehow find find out how to develop a common secular language which gets along because it's dispensed with religion. At that level of deepest convictions, one is bringing a point of view, a worldview, an understanding of who human beings are. And obviously, if it's a political debate or a legal debate, it needs to be about what the public law should be. Uh, And therefore, there are all kinds of extraneous arguments one could imagine one making about um, uh, theology or something else that wouldn't be relevant to that particular debate But it would have to uh, there would have to be freedom of speech and engagement and argument there. I don't think anyone should be excluded uh, from the debate, from the political participation ahead of time because they are being religious. Now, the further comment I want to make is that uh, Western Christianity, at least the history of uh, Christianity in the West, has itself been partly responsible, uh, as many of you, I'm sure, know, for the ambiguity in this use of the words religion and what is secular. Cyclum, the Latin word from which we derive secular, uh, really means of or pertaining to this world. And in the high middle ages, the distinction between a religious vocation or what came to be referred to as the religious, which was largely ecclesiastical, is distinct from those vocations and activities that one might have in this world that are unrelated to the church. But cyclum did not mean by any way or uh, any stretch not related to God. It didn't mean unrelated or unreligious. In fact, in a high medieval view, everything was related to God, but generally seen as mediated through the church uh, through its various uh, uh, actions. (coughs) So at the point where uh, in the modern, particularly Enlightenment, uh, revolutions that took place, when the church was discarded from its or moved from its established position, when religion at that point gets identified particularly with religious vocation, with the church, with ecclesiastical institutions, with prayer and piety and talk of God, that which was left, the cyclum, came to be seen as unrelated to God because it no longer had to be related to the church. So I think that's the root of the way we tend to talk rather easily about the secular meaning not religious, when in fact for many people, many Christians, Jews, Muslims, and many beside, that which is of or pertaining to this world has everything to do with God. How could I not be asking how I serve God in the way that I raise my children or serve the poor or something else? So I think the big question that we face, uh, certainly in constitutional adjudication, but even in the political argumentation, is how do we see government related not to that which is religious compared to a government that's not but how is government related to a multiplicity of institutions how is government related to churches and and similar organizations I think that's pretty well worked out I don't think there are too many uh, the constitutional lawyers can uh, straighten me out on this I think the distinction of church and state as institutions is not too difficult a thing to work with But what about government in relation to schools? What about government in relationship to social welfare organizations? What about government in relations to relation to various kinds of public media? It's at that point that you do need to make the distinction I would say between government and other institutions. A school is not a church. A family is not a state. A uh, academic institution is not uh, any media corporation. So there are multiple uh, institutions But if there are people whose way of life, their whole way of life and all that they do is to be honest before the face of God and they have to serve. How do we then make room for multiple or genuinely pluralistic ways of living life in public and not just in private? The main uh, impetus of the Enlightenment -Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment period has been to say if it's not identifiably religious connected with something like a church or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque, then it is all purpose generality. So you have plenty of room for pluralism in private life, but there has to be some kind of uniformity in public life. And it seems to me that where we need to move uh, in uh, addressing this is to say, religion in that broader sense of a way of life ought to be free to show itself, to work its way out in the education of children, in social welfare, And that the way government should relate to those variety of religions is by making room for a plurality of opportunities, a diversity of school systems, a diversity of social welfare services, all of which get equal treatment. And the key thing to guard against is no one gets monopoly of the public square. So the worry that religion will become uh, dominant, that it will become uh, uh, overwhelming, that some religion will throw others out, indeed has to be guarded against so that there's equal treatment for all, pluralism in public as well as in private life. Thank you.
2: I prepared these remarks under the title, The Role of Religious Considerations in the Public Discourse of Pluralistic Democracies. I did bring an outline but you won't need it. It's available on that table if uh, anyone would like to have one afterward. I'll begin with background assumptions. I assume that an appropriate church-state separation is a protection of religious liberty and governmental autonomy. Three principles I defend are a liberty principle that requires government to protect religious liberty, an equality principle requiring its equal treatment of different religions, and a neutrality principle requiring its neutrality toward religion. The equality principle implies non-establishment. The neutrality principle is not entailed by the other two, nor, so far as I can tell, clearly required by the Constitution. In political philosophy, it's also more controversial. I also assume that there is a moral right to maximal freedom of expression in public discourse, and that here as in other realms of conduct, liberty is the default position in free democracies. Two, standards for freedom of expression versus standards for advocacy of laws and public policies. Free expression may have many purposes other than advocacy. Those engaging in it need not even aim at persuasion. By contrast, advocacy of laws or public policies normally is intended to persuade and most of those are also coercive for coercion as opposed to free expression there are higher standards both moral and legal we are free to persuade others to do things we ought not to coerce them to do related to this in the moral realm it is essential to distinguish rights from oughts there are things many of us ought to do, such as give to charity, which we nonetheless have a moral right not to do. No one may coerce charitable contributions. Given our moral rights, free expression and advocacy should be legally limited only by a harm principle, roughly a principle to the effect that the liberty of competent adults should be restricted only to prevent harm to other people, animals, or the environment. Ethically, however, both free expression and advocacy should meet higher standards than this very permissible one. Three, some major principles governing advocacy of laws and public policies. Regarding good citizenship, I've defended a standard I've called the principle of secular rationale. It says that citizens in a free democracy have a prima facie obligation not to advocate or support any law or public policy that restricts human conduct unless they have and are willing to offer adequate secular reason for this advocacy or support, for instance, for a vote. This principle has been widely misunderstood. Here are a few of the needed qualifications and an indication of its basis. One. A prima facie obligation is defeasible and may be overridden. Suppose appeal to religious considerations is necessary to enact laws that will prevent a Nazi from coming to power. Then one should appeal to them. Two, the prima facie obligation here, like many others, is compatible with a right to do otherwise. The secular rationale standard is for good citizenship, not for merely permissible sociopolitical functioning. Three, a secular reason for an action is roughly one whose status as a potential justifier of action does not evidentially depend on, but also does not deny the existence of God, nor does it depend on theological considerations or the pronouncements of a person or institution as a religious authority. But secular reasons, say considerations of public safety, will typically accord With reasons that are supported by at least some major religions. Four, an adequate reason is one that, in rough terms, evidentially justifies the belief, act, or other element it supports. The notion is objective, but complex and non quantitative. In many applications, it is controversial, but no plausible political or legal philosophy can do without it. Five, excusability. A person who does not live up to the principle of secular rationale is not ipso facto a bad citizen. Like other failures, this one may be fully excusable. Six, the principle of secular rationale is non-exclusive. A, it doesn't rule out having religious reasons for legal coercion, nor imply that such reasons cannot justify. B, it does not even rule out having only religious reasons for lifting oppression or expanding liberty. It concerns coercion. C. It does not imply that religious reasons should be privatized. Indeed, one might quite properly indicate publicly that one supports, say, illegalizing assisted suicide not from a religious ground, such as reverence for God's gift of life, but for secular reasons, such as protection of vulnerable patients. Seven. Seven. As to the basis of the principle, here I'll suggest only that A, it supports free democracy and religious liberty, B, it helps to prevent religious strife, and C, it's needed to observe the do unto others principle since clearly rational citizens may properly resent coercion based on someone else's religious convictions. I should add that I could have called it the principle of natural reason, This would highlight both its central stress on our natural rational endowment and its continuity with elements in the natural law tradition as expressed in Aquinas. Note that we can take our natural endowment as God given, even if we regard the knowledge it makes possible, notably including moral knowledge, as attainable even without appeal to theology or religion. This is a good place to stress a principle I've more recently introduced as a complement to the secular rationale principle. It's the principle of religious rationale. It says religious citizens in a liberal democracy have a prima facie obligation not to advocate or support any law or public policy that restricts human conduct unless they have and are willing to offer adequate religiously acceptable reason for this advocacy or support. The underlying idea is that the ethics of good citizenship calls on religious citizens to constrain their coercion of fellow citizens by seeking a rationale from their own religious perspective. This is a perspective it would be hypocritical or worse to ignore in such a weighty matter. Given the common coincidence between religious reasons for basic legal constraints on freedom and natural reasons, which are secular, For the same constraints, the principle of religious rationale is an important complement to its secular counterpart. Four, the wider question of the place of religious considerations in public discourse. Let me conclude with some comments on some of the standards for religious expression, whether argumentative or simply expressive, in public discourse. These are, in effect, standards for non-privatization. The uses of religious language are unlimited. Think not just of advocacy and persuasion, but of self-expression, self-description, and information. I may need to tell you my religious position to say, in any depth, who I am. I may want to persuade an audience of physicians and attorneys not to violate our relation to God by facilitating assisted suicide, even though I have voted to legalize it for natural reasons based on respect for the liberty of others with different religions or none. What are some of the standards of good citizenship for the socio-political use of religious discourse? One is simply judiciousness. Will what we say be illuminating or alienating, unifying or divisive, clarifying or obfuscating? There are myriad considerations here, both of ethical sensitivity and of prudence. A second consideration is a spirit of reciprocity based partly on a sense of universal standards available to all rational, um, minimally educated adult citizens. An appeal to a biblical narrative, for instance, can be clarifying with regard to such secular questions as whether prosperous nations are obligated to give more than they do to poor ones. Consider also the do unto others rule. The wording is biblical. The content is a call for reciprocity, even universalizability. I see no conflict between being religious, indeed expressively so in public, and adhering to both the principle of secular rationale and that of religious rationale. This integration is most likely to be well-reasoned and stable if it is supported by a theo equilibrium. This is roughly a rational integration between religious deliverances and insights concerning moral matters and, on the other hand, secular ethical considerations. There are theological reasons, at least from the point of view of natural theology, for thinking that a high degree of theoethical integration is possible, at least for those who conceive God as omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent. Religious citizens who achieve theoethical equilibrium will typically have both natural and religious reasons for their standards governing freedom and coercion. I close with a suggestion that public discourse in a free democracy is best served by citizens having and in a wide range of important matters using an appropriate civic voice. Such a voice is a matter of intonation and manifest respect for others' points of view and convictions. It may reflect religious elements, but in citizens adhering to the principle of natural reason, it will also indicate a respect for standards that simply as rational persons we do or can have in common and should take as a basis for setting the proper limits on our, may I say, sacred liberty.
3: Thank you. Thank you to the organizers for including me uh, in this event. It's wonderful to see so many old friends and uh, uh, meet new ones. And I include, uh, I guess, all the members of the panel uh, uh, up here. Uh, We've had uh, conversations on this general uh, subject. I think all of us for going on uh, a decade or two uh, uh, now. I'd like to uh, begin by trying to clarify what it is that we are uh, uh, talking about. Uh, you, we've all, I think, heard the complaint uh, about, uh, you know, one policy, another, be it perhaps uh, re- restrictions on uh, same-sex marriage uh, or, uh, or stem cell research, or it wasn't long ago that there were complaints uh, from uh, uh, opponents of civil rights in the South when uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King called upon ministers to become more religiously aware and engaged on that issue or to look back you know, over a hundred years ago to when uh, uh, Southern supporters of slavery were indignant that, uh, uh, that uh, n- Northern abolitionists uh, would uh, bring religious arguments to bear against the precious uh, 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 practice of slavery. If, and uh, uh, you, you may recall that William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator in the very, up in the, up in the very top, of the uh, front page of the uh, newspaper uh, had a cross and a biblical quotation in support of of the position. Well, people say that this is interjecting politics in an inappropriate way, uh, that there's something wrong with either citizens enacting or legislators, citizens advocating or legislators enacting laws that are based upon uh, religious rationales, premises, uh, or arguments. And this comes both in a constitutional law version and in a political theory version. The constitutional law version is that it violates the Constitution and specifically the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment uh, for uh, laws to be uh, passed if their primary uh, rationale based is based upon a religious premise such as the existence of God or divine commands. Uh, or theological considerations including the interpretation of sacred texts or the pronouncements of religious authorities that this would make the laws unconstitutional. The political theory version which I take it is Professor Audie's, uh position is uh, that uh, in, as a matter of democratic theory that such uh, arguments and such laws are inconsistent with uh, uh, with uh, good democratic practice, and that good democratic citizens would refrain uh, from uh, making such uh, arguments. Now, Professor Aldi graciously is willing to excuse that it's not ipso facto make, uh, makes uh, doesn't a citizen who offers a religious argument is not ipso facto he says a bad citizen, uh, but he is in fact making uh, uh, committing some uh, uh, offense against good uh, democratic. Uh, a citizenship uh, it's, uh, uh, and, and, and I think we should bracket it's important to note that we are bracketing here and I think uh, all of the at least the speakers so far are all in agreement that we are not arguing uh, uh, that this is not about laws which are actual infringements upon anyone's religious liberty in the sense of being uh, uh, you know, classic establishments such as laws that have the Purpose of advancing religion uh, such as taxes for the support of religion or uh, requiring school prayer for the support of religion. We are talking about laws which, were, which are about matters of, uh, of the public good such things as stem cell research or slavery uh, or environmentalism or uh, any number of issues but where the arguments uh, that some citizens may offer with respect to those laws have... Um, I have religious premises. Now, Professor Audi's argument is very complicated, and he says that it's often misunderstood. I fear I'm often in this camp of misunderstanding. There are a lot of qualifications and, and, uh, and curlicues and, uh, and so forth in, in the argument. Um, my position, I think, is simpler and perhaps less subject to being misunderstood. Uh, and my position is that as a matter both of constitutional law and of democratic theory, all citizens have an equal right to offer whatever arguments they consider persuasive in support of the public good. And the rest of us have an equal right to hear those and to accept them or reject them according to whether we find them persuasive. Thus, that there are no epistemological theological, uh, philosophical, uh, 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 pre-screening devices for democracy, right? Uh, uh, None. Now, why do I say this? I'd like to offer uh, uh, two arguments here today, one based upon history and one based upon democratic theory. Uh, The history, I think, is important because although Professor Adi does not uh, stress this, Professor uh, uh, John Rawls, whose argument this is, uh, argues that this uh, idea of an exclusion of uh, religious and other comprehensive ideologies as a basis for public policy is based upon an uncontroversial, widely shared premise of American public life. And it seems to me that that is just... Patently, not so uh, as a matter of history. In fact, uh, the the use of religious, expressly religious arguments uh, in matters of uh, politics have been with us from the beginning. They've been with us all along. It would be impossible to tell the story of American political life without reference to religiously engaged, motivated uh, advocates. And this is from the very beginning, the American Revolution which was defended by ministers and other religious people in religious terms. King George III, in fact, when asked what was the cause of the American Revolution, blamed it on the, quote, black regiment, by which he did not mean mean the African-American soldiers that fought on the American side. What he was referring to were the Congregationalist Puritan ministers in their black robes who were the principal uh, apologists for uh, uh, for uh, liberty or among the principal apologists for liberty in America and George the thought they were uh, uh, the most important. Uh, I think the greatest irony of this argument is that the first amendment religion clauses themselves were advocated by religious people such as especially Baptist ministers but others as well and for expressly uh, religious purposes uh, and, and on religious rationales. In fact it's ironic that the defenders of establishment of religion in America tended to offer secular arguments in favor of the establishment. those who favored disestablishment of religion, freedom of religion in America tended to argue uh, tended to offer religious arguments. even Thomas Jefferson, not, I think, the most uh, religious uh, uh, one of our founders, begins. His bill for the establishment of religious freedom in Virginia with a th- an express theological proposition. Well aware that almighty God hath created the mind free is the way Jefferson begins uh, uh, his bill. And then he goes on to argue that establishment is contrary to the, quote, plan of the holy author of our religion, referring here to uh, Jesus Christ. So if it were true that offering religious arguments in favor of public policies somehow delegitimizes them, the very First Amendment in the American Constitution would be delegitimized, right? Those were among the most important arguments. And all through American history, this continues. The anti-slavery movement was almost exclusively a uh, a movement of uh, Uh, of religious people, Uh, the opposition to to, uh, polygamy, the Catholic social uh, labor movement, uh, uh, prohibition, most of the anti-war movements in American history, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, uh, you name it. It is hard to find a major social movement, whether you agree with it or not, and everyone in the room will be able to find examples of ones that they like and those that they dislike, but virtually every social movement and America has had a component of religious advocacy involved. So to suggest that secularization of our public discourse is something which is a, is, is a shared premise or an uncontroversial uh, 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 a shared point for American public life is simply a historical falsehood. Let us turn then to theory. For theory, I actually begin... In exactly the same place that John Rawls begins, with what he calls the fact of reasonable pluralism. What this means is that it is a fact of life in the United States and in other modern pluralistic democracies that there are, that people dis, that there are a wide number of differing reasonable worldviews. We do not all share the same premises, and that these disagreements are ineradicable. It is even in principle, if we could talk forever, right, and and produce the best possible evidence for our positions, uh, uh, we would still disagree. We would still have people who are fundamentally of different uh, orientations. We would still have libertarians. We would still have, have statists. We would still have environmentalists. We would still have feminists. We would still have people who are critical legal studies believers. We would have utilitarians. We would have any number of uh, uh, of points of view, that is a fact of life, right? Um, So that's the uh, uh, the first point. The second is that it is therefore, my second point is therefore hopelessly utopian to think that public policy, including public policy with respect to coercion, such things as preventing people from owning slaves, Right, or taxing them more for, the, uh, for support of social welfare programs. Even with respect to coercion, it is hopelessly utopian to think that public policy can be based upon shared premises. Right. There might be a, a, a conglomeration of premises that add up to a majority, but you are never going to have unanimity with respect to this. We will always have differences of, uh, of opinion. And not only is it utopian, but it is downright silly to think that democratic theory, which is, after all, all about how to resolve differences, would presuppose any sort of uh, common ground. So how do we proceed as a democratic, pluralistic society in the face of ineradicable, reasonable differences of of opinion? I would submit that there is only one possible basis which is consistent with the equality of all citizens. And that is that everyone has an equal right to advocate for the public good according to the premises that they find persuasive. Some of those people are going to offer premises that any one of us may find to be completely implausible, maybe even crazy they can put them forward. We can listen to them. It is our right to disagree, but it is not our right. And it is not the right of judges wearing robes. And it is not the right of, you know, political scientists and in in some uh, uh, seminar rooms to serve as gatekeepers for what arguments can be made. And so When Professor Audi concludes by saying that he's talking about using the appropriate civic voice. I don't depend. I'm not going to stand here and defend inappropriate civic voices. But I will say that in a democracy, it is the citizens, each citizen in terms of the civic voice that they believe is going to be persuasive And all citizens, in terms of the voices we find persuasive, we are to be the judge of that. And there are no theological, philosophical, ideological, or epistemic uh, uh, limitations upon those arguments. Thank you.
4: Well, I'm very pleased to be part of this uh, panel and participate. When I was asked whether I would be interested in this, and one of my early questions was who else is going to be on the panel? And when I found that out, I decided, yes, I would like to participate. Uh, I'm going to start with some clarifications about how I see the topic. Uh, Some of this may be a bit repetitive, but I think this is helpful. I don't see this as mainly about the force of the establishment clause with Judge McConnell. I think there's a big difference between promoting a a, a religious position, let's say, which I think teaching creationism is and uh, deciding some moral or political issue based on a religious judgment, such as whether there should be a restrictive abortion law. And uh, I don't think this is a question of whether anyone should be restricting advocacy in religious terms. Uh, The question is whether people should ideally restrain themselves in some way. It's not a question of whether religion should be a private matter. Religious perspectives could be uh, used to critique cultural values, urged as a basis for personal lives, um, even if those perspectives are not used to advocate political positions in the way that is in controversy. It's not a question, as Professor Audi's explained, as to whether one could explain one's religious views as they bear on a topic like welfare, same-sex marriage, or abortion. Uh, And among co-believers, this kind of discussion might be the main discussion, even though in advocacy in the public realm, there would be an attempt to rely on public reasons. It's not a question of whether religion is going to influence people's judgments and advocacies. Of course it is. Nobody could uh, completely divorce themselves from their religious views. It's a question of how people should try to decide things and of how they should advocate. And it's also not a question of whether it's sometimes prudent or strategically helpful to make non-religious arguments. The answer to that may be yes. The issue is whether there's some principle of restraint uh, about making religious arguments. Some principle that applies to the public sphere suggesting that it would always be inappropriate or at least prima facie inappropriate to make such arguments. Now one could approach this topic from one's own religious perspectives or from what one might call detached political philosophy that doesn't rely on any particular religious view and most discussions of the topic uh, are in this latter category. Now, we might think that there are some principles that are applicable to all liberal democracies. I think that's Rawls's view. Uh, I, I think it's Professor Audi's view. Or one might think that it matters what the historical time and place is. The typical discussions of this topic, I think, are either about all liberal democracies or arguments that bring in the Establishment Clause in a strong way. The forms of advocacy that people talk about are typically decided uh, uh, tied to the bases of decision. And the idea is, well, if you shouldn't advocate to other people on a certain ground, if you're a legislator or a voter, you also shouldn't be deciding on that ground. So typically the bases for decision are linked to the forms of advocacy and the positions that people take. And typically it's assumed that the appropriate limits are the same for officials and for citizens who are advocating in the public realm. It's commonly assumed and this hasn't been touched on yet that if religious grounds shouldn't be the basis for advocacy then neither should some other grounds non-rational grounds controversial ideas of the good or most influentially other comprehensive views. So according to Rawls, if you can't rely on a religious argument, you shouldn't rely on Benthamite utilitarianism either. Now, just in passing, the Benthamite utilitarian would need to give up a lot less of what he'd be advocating about a particular position than would many religious believers if if both of them restrained themselves from relying on their comprehensive view. Now, it's often said that there's a line between issues that warrant this kind of self-restriction and those that don't. Rawls talks about constitutional essentials and basic issues of justice as being the ones that call for the restraint, and we've heard Professor Audi talk about coercive measures as being the sort of crucial uh, category. Now, my own position is an intermediate one. I think there are reasons of fairness and political stability to rely on grounds to seek grounds that have force or should have force for everyone in the society. But I also think there are reasons of liberty and fairness to let people rely upon and advocate the reasons that they think are most persuasive. So I think this, this is a genuine dilemma with substantial arguments on each side. I don't think either side has a knockdown argument that just sort of destroys the argument on the other side. I doubt if there's one set of principles for all liberal democracies. I think time place and cultural heritage are important. So what I'm speaking to is here and now in the United States. I think there should be more restraint for officials than ordinary citizens. There are a lot more citizens and officials. So the liberty interest in freedom is much more substantial when one thinks of citizens. Officials are much more used to saying less than they fully believe to giving reasons that fit political conditions. Asking officials not to publicly advocate political measures in religious terms is, I think, a pretty modest restraint. The, the same restraint—the uh, idea that the same restraint should be on advocacy as decisions is also one that I disagree with. What we're talking about here is reciprocal self-restraint. I restrain myself, but in return, you do the same thing. Now, it's very hard to know how anybody else is actually reaching a decision, but it's not hard to know what they're saying. Therefore, if we if we did accept some kind of reciprocal restraint, and for me, it's only for officials on religious uh, uh, discourse, that would be fairly easy to know whether somebody's complying with that or not. And I think it's a solid basis for some kind of reciprocal understanding, uh, whereas I see it making the decisions is quite different. I also think there are significant differences uh, among officials, and I think judges are under more restraints than uh, legislators, for instance. Um, and I'm wondering I, uh, whether Judge McConnell thinks that it would be appropriate for himself as a judge to rely on an explicitly theological Argument based on his conception of God to reach a judicial decision now in this society. I would think that would be pretty clearly not appropriate. But I, I see the restraint as being significantly less for legislators. Uh, now, uh, insofar as religious grounds should not be the basis for advocacy, I think the same should be true about other comprehensive views. But I'm very troubled by how one draws the line between when reliance is on a comprehensive view and it's not, whether reliance is on a religious view or not. And uh, I think natural law provides a good example of of something that's right on the borderline. I, I, I could go into that in more detail, but I won't right now. I'm skeptical about the line between coercive laws and other political decisions. And between constitutional essentials and basic issues of justice and other issues. So the status of the uh, fertilized embryo is crucial for both the issue of abortion and funding for stem cell research. Abortion involves coercion. Uh, I mean, a restrictive abortion law would involve coercion. Uh, Not funding stem cell research doesn't involve coercion. I, I think it would be very puzzling to think that the grounds and the advocacy as to one of those issues should be significantly different than the grounds that we think are appropriate Uh, for uh, the other of the two issues. Uh, I don't think the government as such should be promoting religion and on establishment clause issues, clear establishment clause issues, I tend to be on the disestablishment or separationist side, but I see reliance on religious grounds where the object is not to promote religion or endorse religion as quite different. So, I don't follow those who advocate this fairly strict reliance on public reasons, but I arrive at this kind of mixed up intermediate position. Thank you.
0: And we will now have a few moments of response from each of the panelists, and then we'll have a question period. Dr. Skilling, you can take the podium or speak from where you
1: are. General response. Yeah. Uh, just a few comments. I'm anxious to hear questions. Uh, I'm quite in agreement with Mike McConnell with the general statement that he laid out. Uh, It seems to me that to prejudge how one may speak is itself a judgment about uh, who may participate as a citizen and who not. And if everyone's a citizen, they should be free to participate. I think some of the questions, as uh, Professor Audi, much of his discussion, I would say if at many points where he uses the word secular or secular reasoning uh, or secular reasons, um, he used uh, public legal reasons or political reasoning, I'd be quite sympathetic. That is to say, anyone, wherever they're coming from, whether they're religious or not, if the issue is what kind of law should we pass, uh, what should Congress do, what is legally permissible needs to be engaged in public legal arguments. So it can't just be God told me something or science has lately shown or uh, my best friend thinks this, Uh, there's not much of an argument there. It would have to be why should Congress or the the courts do this? And then of course what should follow is uh, why this will be just or sound or good for for the common good. But that of course raises precisely the question what is it that we think government ought to do? What's the nature and the task of government in its relationship to other institutions? And I would dare say that it's at that basic root that we're right back to some of the most fundamental considerations. Where do we get our notions of a diversified society, limited government, freedom of human beings, constitutional freedoms, restrictions? And I think that uh, that there is, uh, in every case, those are grounded in some kind of comprehensive uh, point of view. So one brings a political philosophy, one brings a view of life with one, and that's why I would say uh, I think McConnell's right. We have to be free to make our arguments, and in the end we might well disagree with where we started, but we may find through majority decisions and uh, good constitutional reasoning or even constitutional amendments, we may find good grounds for why we can continue cooperating and agree with with the law. So I I don't, uh, I I would still say that uh, In many ways, the discussion about religiously, religious language, that might lead to coercion. I don't know of any religious language that can lead to coercion unless it, of course, becomes law. It becomes public legal uh, law for governments to impose. And it's at that point that I think a constitutional protection, which does indeed say people have protections of their freedom to speak, to associate, to organize, to live, to participate in political life, that has to be a ground. Even a majority of 90 shouldn't be able to overcome one's right to continue to be a minority with a different viewpoint. I think where the difficulties come in as when I and my freedom of association want to and feel conscience-bound to organize in, in, a, uh, in the schooling or in social services or in other ways. Uh, is that at that point restricted, or at least uh, inequitable funding or whatever else restricted, because I'm already told that this kind of association that we've done for the very public legal purpose that's there to help people or educate children is already discarded or off the the map because it comes from a religious point of view, as if the standpoints or viewpoints that others come with are not themselves deeply grounded in a, a particular worldview.
2: I'll be as brief as I can, and so we'll speak only to things Judge McConnell said, which I suspect interests the audience most. He cited my excusability clause in connection with freedom of expression, but I want to stress once again that I don't have any principle for restricting free expression, which I support to the hilt. Prudence operates there, of course. I think in another place he associated me more closely with Rawls than he should have. I think I'm much more accommodationist than Rawls, particularly before his preface to the paperback edition of political liberalism. Now, related to this, he referred to an epistemological pre-screening device. So let me remind you that I said that for coercion one should have adequate secular reason something that's uh, available to us as rational, informed citizens, one can also have religious reasons and they can be evidentially sound as far as I'm concerned. It's just that if I'm going to illegalize assisted suicide, I shouldn't do it just on a basis. That involves my interpretation of scripture, let's say, when lots of people who are equally devoted to scripture, read it differently, and then there are those who aren't religious at all and would like the freedom to have assisted suicide. So um, it's really a requirement that one have a certain kind of reason for coercion. It's not a requirement that one's speech be limited or that one can't act for religious as well as other kinds of reasons, even with coercion. And I might add, when it comes to liberalization, given that liberty is the default position in a free democracy, religious reasons are just fine. So I applaud their use in lifting oppression. Now, I also want to say that in no way would I want to delegitimize religious argument it's a question of what role it ought to play and whether it ought to play a role all on its own, unsupported by the kinds of reasons one can have when one is in a theoethical equilibrium where natural reason cooperates with theological and religious insight to produce an integrated view. There's a larger thing I want to mention that I think hasn't surfaced except uh, perhaps in Kent's initial remarks. It is that a morality that concentrates just on rights is too narrow. I gave the example of a right not to give to charity. It seems to me you can have wrongs within rights. Not every exercise of a right is something we should approve of. There are times you have a right to punish your child or criticize your colleague, and on balance you ought not to do it, but no one should coerce you to prevent you. So I'm interested in an ethics of citizenship that calls for our meeting a higher standard than simply living within our rights. Sure, there's a right to vote on your religious convictions, but would you want uh, a majority uh, Islamic population that wanted women to wear burqas to impose that for religious reasons only? There might be reasons for wearing burqas that uh, you know have a, another basis, so uh, I don't rule that out a priori, but the point is, We very much dislike being coerced at all, but certainly by religious reasons from another person's religious point of view. So maybe at that point, I would just say uh, one question for Judge McConnell, if you'd like to address it, is whether he has an interesting restriction in the idea that everyone has a right to advocate for the public good. Is there an objective notion of the public good? that creates a constraint on the appropriate sort of normative reason one can give for laws and public policy. Maybe so, uh, but I didn't hear that in the position overall. Judge McConnell. Well, I think it would be
3: good to get to the audience, I'll just address the two particular questions that have been uh, put to me. Katrina Wall asks, well, what in my capacity as a judge uh, would I rely upon explicitly theological uh, premises? And uh, the answer to that is no, but nor would I rely upon uh, any other personal philosophical, whether secular or, non, or non-secular or uh, non uh, uh, personal premises. I believe that, in the, that a judge is a constrained uh, decision maker whose obligation is to rely upon the law and nothing else but the law. Uh, now, uh, and and so my, uh, my my theological principles don't appear in the U.S. code, uh, and uh, and therefore they uh, they won't appear in my opinions uh, either. Uh, but that is not a, it's not because they're theological, right? It's because my personal uh, opinions about uh, 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 matters are are not uh, are not an appropriate basis for uh, uh, for legal for judicial decision making. Uh, Professor Audi asks a, a hard, and I really quite like his question. He asks whether there's any interesting uh, restriction implied when I talk about uh, citizens uh, arguing, uh, uh, making arguments based upon uh, the common good. Um, I I don't know how interesting they are, uh, but the, I I I impl- I do think that there is a sense in which uh, p- uh, purely self-interested arguments are a brand of a bad citizen. Uh, but I also think that the common good is something, or the public good, is something which only the citizens are able to, uh, uh, to decide. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that we should not um, try In advance to label some arguments, uh, you know, agricultural price supports would be my favorite example of a, you know, public policy that's just virtually impossible to defend on, on, uh, you know, on a genuine public good basis. But you know, I say let people defend them and let the rest of the, of the 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 public decide. I, I do think that it is a problem of our. Of our politics, that so much of our political practice seems to be cobbling together a whole bunch of people's self-interest, and to, and to, uh, uh, you know, it, it's as if if we get enough earmarks in the uh, in the in the bill, then uh, we all everybody benefits. I'm uh, I don't like that aspect of our politics, but it doesn't lead me to to think that we need a complicated theory. That's uh, I just think that what. A, a healthy democracy will be skeptical of uh, uh, of so much self-interested uh, uh, argument, but I really like that question. Um, makes me uh, makes me think.
0: Thank you, Professor uh
4: I just have two fairly brief points. The first is that both Judge McConnell and Dr. Skillen talked about no sp- no pre-screening devices and so on that kind of language. Now, I would think that there are some basis for arguments that are really contrary to liberal democratic premises such as racism and I would think that we would say if somebody makes an explicitly racist argument you know you're free to do that but that really is contrary to the, the way we think about things in this society so I'm I'm skeptical that one would really want to defend for no pre-screening if it includes that and then the question is if one does think that that kind of pre-screening is appropriate for that kind of argument. How do religious arguments fit? So I'm again, I do think there's a huge difference between the religious arguments and the other. But I don't think one can just sort of toss it off. while there's no pre-screening of arguments. The second point, and I'm uh, and now realize which I didn't when I first posed this question, about the judge and how that, how that compares with the legislator, whether the judge is relying on theological arguments. The Judge McConnell and I were at a conference at Catholic University about seven or eight years ago in which we engaged in this exchange. And those papers have finally seen the light of day, thanks to Bill Wagner, about seven years later, as these have just come out. Uh, But anyway, I think that Judge McConnell oversimplified to a considerable degree here. Uh, And... That is, I think judges are often in the position of deciding when the law is not clear about something or how to interpret a law, they consider it questions of public welfare and justice and views that aren't drawn explicitly from the law do bear on their opinions. And just to take one example of that, how about, uh, of course, Judge McConnell's not in this position, Uh, The judge who's got to decide what's in the best interest of a child in a custody dispute. That's the standard. The judge has to decide, you know, what's in the best interest of the child. The the law does not tell the judge everything that's relevant to the best interest of the child. Uh, A judge could rely on various things. Would it be appropriate for a judge to say, well, I know from the Bible that this is in the better interest of the child from a from God's point of view from the true religious point of view than this alternative and I still think that's inappropriate and so I do think there's a difference for the judge between relying on explicit theological premises and relying on some other premises that are not directly drawn from the law itself
0: All right, we'll now take your questions for the panel. And there is a microphone in the center of the room if you'd like to step forward if you have questions. If you have a question um, for specific members of the panel, that's fine, or for the panel as a whole.
2: I have a question for the whole, (coughs) for anyone on the panel. Uh, Would there be any cases where uh, within our current political discussion there are particular issues uh, where an important viewpoint could not be justified? except on what what some of you have labeled ex- explicitly religious grounds are there arguments that would be shut out entirely uh, either viewpoints or entire topics if we didn't allow people to make argue- make their points based on their individually held religious beliefs Dr. Stone
0: or anyone?
4: Like to
0: feel that like to say All right,
4: so mm-hmm. I think it would be a rare issue where you could not find some non-theological argument. So in that, think, uh, that sense, I think nothing would be excluded. But if we were going to be honest with ourselves, we'd have to think sometimes the non-religious reasons might not be enough to carry the day, but the religious reasons we would find strong enough to carry the day. And then it would make a difference whether you're relying on them and advocating them. Same-sex marriage might be an example of that. Uh, maybe abortion for some people would be an example of that, and so on. So, I, I don't think we should think of this as whether there's ever going to be an issue that doesn't involve any, theo- uh, you know, anything other than theological arguments, but whether the, the tipping point, point could be uh, uh, superseded by uh, the use of the religious uh, basis.
3: I don't think there are very many. Uh there are some having to do with Native American beliefs about the land uh, for example there have been several cases that have come up uh, in our, my part of the world uh, where uh, there have been for, for example Rainbow Bridge which is an arch uh, down uh, off of, uh, by Lake Powell is, a, is sacred to the Navajos and there is uh, an effort by the National Park Service to uh, to restrain boaters from, uh, from going and cavorting on the uh, on this uh, particular arch and there's no, I mean they can conform on every other arch so I mean, it's not as if there's any, the only reason Rainbow Bridge is different is because it's, uh, it, because some of our fellow citizens think that it's sacred so that's uh, an example of uh, an argument that I guess would be excluded if we, uh, uh, if we did not, uh, if we excluded expressly religious arguments.
2: I would just like to add that I wouldn't actually call that a religious argument. It's an argument from respect for religion, and it's not obvious to me that other sufficiently deeply held views might not generate the same kind of judicial action. Well,
3: it may not be a religious argument for us, but it's a religious argument for the Navajos who think that it's sacred. Because they're not saying, they're saying that this is a sacred ground.
2: Well, if we relativize to what's religious for a speaker, practically anything could be religious.
3: Dr.
0: Skillen? No. All right. Next question.
5: Uh, I've got a three-sided question, uh, and I hope the panel will, from one end to the other, uh, uh, respond. Uh, the strongest argument that seems to be made for, thus far for religious uh, speech in the public square is an equality argument, and it seems to me that some of Judge McConnell's writings uh, makes an even stronger argument. I wonder if he's uh, go, uh, reconsidered that, and that is that the First Amendment is more than uh, religious speech is more than just equal. Uh, that there is some sense of a, a preference, or at least a special place for that kind of speech in our political system, uh, which may be different than others. Uh, so I wonder if we can't make a stronger argument than uh, you know, let all the flowers bloom, uh, including the religious ones. Second, um, I noticed that none of the panelists made a religious argument for the proposition. Uh, they've all presented their positions in non-religious, in rational uh, terms. And, uh, and, and, and I wonder what that tells us. I mean, certainly nobody's going to throw stones at you for making a religious argument in this setting. Uh, and, and yet it doesn't come out. What does that tell us about our society? Have we become so secularized? Uh, um, I, I, uh, is it because there is no common religious value that we can speak to in terms, uh, you know, it's not just I can make a Baptist argument or a Catholic argument or a Mormon argument, but are there no common religious arguments that we can make that are persuasive in a public setting anymore? Uh, and I wonder if, uh, you know, uh, we've so sanitized religious speech that we. You know, there were times when you would have grace before you had a meal at a public setting, and I, uh, I don't even think that that occurred here. Uh, I was in another room, though, when things began, and I may be wrong. So we third. had
3: really long grace before you got here.
5: Okay, thank you, uh, Mr. Greenwald. But, Lynn, you came anyway. I came anyway, but <laughs> the third point is American exceptionalism. It seemed, The theme of this conference, and it seems to me that... We have a mission not just to bring democracy or liberty to the world, but to set an example for the world. That's what American exceptionalism has meant, to set an example of how the city on the hill, the shining city, governs and how it—and it, that it has a moral mission. And I wonder if we're not seeing in things like events like Abu Ghraib the effect of a generation of sanitizing moral and religious speech from the public square. And we're seeing a generation of young people coming of age with citizenship responsibilities and guns in their hands that are doing things that their fathers would never have done uh, that we didn't see happen in World War Two, despite the horrors that soldiers face there. So uh, those three sides uh, would love to have an answer about uh, isn't there a stronger argument for religious speech?
0: Who would like to start, Dr. Sullen? Well, Collins? just
1: brief comments. I don't read the First Amendment to have a special place for religious speech. Uh, it, there is freedom of speech, and then there is freedom of religious practice. <laughs> religious practice includes speech, of course, but I, I, don't, I don't read it as having a special place for religious speech compared to non-religious speech, so uh, that would be that. Uh, this panel was to discuss the role of religious uh Uh, Religion and uh, public argument um, uh, with high time constraints, I'm more than willing, based on the kind of work we do, to make uh, an argument from where I come from for why, given a view of human beings created in the image of God, that human beings are not created by the state, uh, states are not the authors of religious freedom, et cetera, et cetera, for the grounds of a open society constitutionally limited state protection of uh, the free practice of people in all areas of life so I'm not hesitant to do it I didn't they didn't that wasn't the nature of the invitation uh, that's my
2: only comment
0: right. Professor, very
2: briefly it seems to me that religion is very deep in people who are genuinely religious and that a free democracy as a system of government of by and for the people will protect religious liberty as much as possible. Now, whether religious liberty is even more precious than any other kind is an interesting question, but you may remember that I said that the principle that government should treat different religions equally doesn't entail that it should be neutral toward religion. So for instance, treat the religious and the non-religious equally. So it's an interesting question on which I defer to others, whether the constitution might allow protecting religious liberty even more zealously than certain other liberties
3: um, the, the reference the specific references to religion have to do with exercise not speech uh, and establishment I do think that the Constitution contemplates uh, special protections for religious exercise but I don't think that it uh, gives uh, religious speakers any uh, Uh, any uh, preference over uh, anyone else. I think the free speech clause is is fundamentally one of equality of all citizens and I think the religious free exercise clause gives all citizens the right to to practice uh, uh, their religion in accordance with with conscience to the greatest extent uh, 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 consistent with important governmental uh, uh, purposes. Uh, we haven't used any religious arguments. I don't know. I've got some of the things we've said have been pretty, uh, uh, pretty religious. Uh, uh, I do think that there is one reason why I don't worry very much about some of the pragmatic arguments against the use of religious uh, arguments in a pluralistic society like America's. I think that the pressures are all the other way. That is, I, I think in a pluralistic world, in a democracy, when you're advocating for policy, that there are good, prudent, political reasons why uh, even religious people will be moved to, uh, to couch their arguments in, in fashions that are going to be uh, broadly, uh, uh, broadly acceptable. And I think democ- without having any pre-screening devices uh, uh, at all, A society like this will tend to have much less uh, sectarian uh, uh, argumentation because of the greater diversity. Because it doesn't work and it's ineffective, and so forth. And I suspect that that's uh, true of this, uh, uh, of even in even a room uh, uh, like this. uh, uh, I'm very hesitant to uh, uh, to attribute. Uh, Abu Ghraib or any other uh, moral failings uh, of our day to um, to the decline in religious speech I don't know but uh, uh, the Calvinist in me is tempted to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and there, are, there is no one righteous no not one Professor Greenwell so I agree with a lot of what Judge McConnell
4: just said Uh, I agree with him, first of all, that the Supreme Court position on the free exercise clause is not nearly as generous as it should be. Well, I don't know whether
3: he still believes that, but he's certainly Mm. written that. Um, Well, I can't believe anything. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
6: (laughs) (laughs) um, I just call the balls and strikes. But... (laughs) what, (laughs) what?
4: but I think that's different from accepting <laughs> theological premises as true by the people that are making the decisions. I think these are separate issues. I want to just agree completely with what he said about bad things that are going on now. And just as a reminder, if we think the 19th century was great... That was a century of slavery, of terrible persecution of of blacks after slavery ended, of inequality for women and so on. There are various things where if we said, you know, was that morally great, that that century, where I think the answer would be no and where I think we've actually have made some progress over time, considerable. The final point I'd like to make is that given the change in the immigration law in 1960s, Previously, there was tremendous favoritism for people that were coming from Europe. And now most of our immigrants are coming from Asia. We're going to get increasing religious diversity over the years unless those laws are significantly changed back. And I think we have to think about a society in which uh, we have this great religious diversity.
0: All right, next question.
7: Uh, w- with the, the premise that... Uh, we are in an experiment of self-government that is in America and that free discussion among the people of, uh, of that government, uh, of its policies, is a necessary component of self-government. I don't see what is advanced uh, by essentially saying certain arguments that, that motivate citizens or public officials. Uh, cannot be raised because what you are doing that then is you are forcing them to to not give their their true motivation or justification but a pretense I mean they're motivated by x and if it's if I understand the argument if it's a religiously based argument it's at least unethical and so that person is required to not give if he wants to be ethical not to give the true reason, but a pretense. And I don't see I, mean, I don't see how our discussion is advanced by having people not place their true argument and have that evaluated and discussed. And I think there are costs to that if if people, uh, you know, the continuation of this experiment is dependent in part upon people believing that it is legitimate and that their concerns can be raised and discussed. Well, if religious people cannot discuss public policy in religious terms, then will you, you are threatening uh, their belief in the legitimacy of the, of the government and of the process. Right, I, and, and finally, one, just one real quick one on, on public officials. If, if the, what is advanced by a pretense, uh, a, a pretensial argument by a public official? Well, what's advanced by that? I mean, wouldn't those who don't want public officials to make decisions based upon religious justifications to know it so that they can vote them out of office as opposed to them pretending that there is some other reason than the true one?
0: I think this sounds like a challenge to Professor
2: Allen. I I think it is. I think it is. I'd like to uh, remind you um, of comments made by uh, other panelists to the effect that in public policy matters, there um, normally are reasons of a kind that don't depend on a particular religious point of view. Then I want to remind you also that I have no objection to people's giving religious arguments I would, however, be very puzzled if someone had only religious reasons for wanting to pass a coercive law or public policy and couldn't think of any other reasons. But if those are the only reasons the person has, then I agree with you, it would be honest to give those reasons in public advocacy. Doing so might tend to invite others who have religious reasons on the other side to present those and as I've said before, we have to be careful about a situation in which we have, in effect, a clash of gods. It's like a meeting of an irresistible force with an immovable object, or can be. Good so yeah,
4: just go the, ahead, Professor. So I think actually this is more an attack on me than Professor Audi, because my position is the one that draws a distinction between advocacy and decision. He says they should be more limited at the basis for the decisions as well. Uh, and I think that is the most argument against my position uh, and I guess my answer to it is I still think I, I, just somebody like Jimmy Carter I think very rarely if ever made a religious argument for laws when he was president a very religious person. It is a, a degree of lack of full candor. I don't think there are many legislators and public officials that are engaging in full candor much of the time. So I don't, think the sacrifice <laughs> here, I, I don't think the sacrifice there is too great, but I think that is a substantial point that you've made.
0: All right, next question.
8: Uh, I would celebrate uh, Professor Audi, Audi's uh, inimical uh, attitude towards relativism, but, I d- but on the point at which you raised that, uh, perhaps taking the extreme, you're correct, but I don't think it would be at all incorrect or particularly relativistic to c- suggest that making policies say, based based on earth and the balance or the kind of uh, crystal cathedral preaching tour that Al Gore is now engaged in, uh, you know, would not be in a sense giving in to arguments of a very spiritual character. And that that my concern is not that we have a, a legal prohibition, but at least currently we seem to have a social prohibition or an allowance to throw tomatoes at somebody that would make a biblically based argument But but to insulate from that style of criticism, the types of advocacy in which uh, uh, people of of the ilk of Al Gore are are now engaged. Would you uh, see at least uh, uh, bringing them into the sphere of your criticism?
2: Well, I think you've been a little abstract. It might help to distinguish the religious from the spiritual. Uh, There are spiritual people who are pretty secular and spiritual considerations like respecting the beauty of the environment that are secular it seems to me also the call here may be for voluntary conservation rather than coercion so I think I can see much value in the direction you're going but I'm not sure exactly what policy implications you're aiming at and I don't know that I've said anything incompatible with the view you're moving
9: toward.
0: Anyone else? All right, next question.
9: Could I suggest, ask this question. Would it, would it make more sense to have an ethic of respect for the points of view of other citizens rather than, an, rather than a requirement uh, that people uh, uh, limit their discourse? Would, would it make more sense to have an ethic of citizenship that says that when I hear a citizen make an argument that comes from a philosophical or religious point of view that I don't share, it would be good for me as a citizen to evaluate that argument, see if perhaps there's something there that I might agree with, something even in that point of, even in their basic grounding that makes more sense than I thought it had. So that instead of encouraging people to say less, we encourage people to say more and encourage the listeners to, to hear in an understanding way and, and, and to try to make sense out of, out of what their fellow citizens are saying that's my, that's my first question. And the second question is, is for Professor Greenwald. I wonder if a restraint on officials giving religious reasons for advocating public policy, I mean, if, if, if that's to be a standard, what does that do to the Declaration of Independence, for example? What does that do to Lincoln's oratory? And, and isn't, in a sense, the effectiveness of the advocacy in those cases, as with Jefferson's Statute for Religious Liberty, in in part due to the appeal to a people who are largely religious and uh, for a very good uh, result. Thank you.
0: Why don't we take well, that one first, if the question is um, put to you, Professor.
9: Okay,
4: well, uh, there certainly are things in the past that wouldn't fit what I said. That's why I talked about time and place. I think Lincoln's what Lincoln says, if one is careful and looks at it, uh, usually is not to say we should do X because of some theological argument. It's to rely on theological arguments in very different ways that I think are perfectly acceptable. Uh, and uh, on the first point, I think there's a lot to what you say. Uh, I think it doesn't apply so much to officials. There's a book by Jeffrey Stout called um, Democracy and Tradition that I think is very
1: good on that.
0: Any other reactions?
4: Just,
1: just quickly, I mean, from, from my religious standpoint, I would hope from others that we would be <laughs> teaching our children students an ethic of respect. But that's, again, kind of abstraction about how to talk. When it comes to the political legal uh, world, how do we do that? It's not just that I want somebody to hear me and say, well, I'll respect it. And then I hear them and respect it. We have to learn how to argue because we're arguing about what would be make for a good public order. And if the argument you're making that I try to hear and I have a respect for you, I think is a very unsound argument and is going to lead to injustice. My respect calls for me to come back and argue back and say, oh, but that's not not right. So civil discourse has to be very vigorous. It has to clarify the different standpoints we have, try to figure out how we live together. Uh, so I'm, I'm fully for the ethic of respect, but then it has to get into what are the different modes of discourse we have and what does respect mean to give to someone with whom we deeply disagree?
2: Very briefly, I think we all think we are proposing an ethics of respect and I've emphasized Theo ethical equilibrium, which involves learning on the religious side from secular thinking and on the secular side from religious thinking. This is not possible for just anyone, but even non-religious people can think their way into a secular perspective. A general point on sharing ideas is that arguments on the whole tend to be valuable, though they can be overdone. Arguments are both paths to understanding and pillars of conviction. So. Uh, in many contexts, the more the better.
0: All right. Last question. We have less than five minutes.
6: First of all, I want to thank the panel. It's been very, very uh, stimulating and uh, my my compliments. I'm sure that when we finish this we'll all give you a round of applause. Uh, But given that uh, religious arguments and secular arguments all proceed from the citizens' own individual view of how the world works, can any member of this panel explain why uh, we should carve out secular views as having a special role as a gatekeeper.
0: Who would like to field that one?
1: I, I don't think there's a reason to give special privilege to any viewpoint, including something to call secular, because actually there are many secular viewpoints. What, what does one mean by a secular viewpoint? Well, there are a variety of them. There are libertarian and Marxist and all kinds of others that would be called, considered perhaps not religious. I think uh, the question comes, how do we do justice in a pluralistic society, both for voices but also for participation according to convictions? And the difficult thing comes where there's public funding, public institutionalization, public making room for citizens. Who has the right to exclude some uh, in a... Prejudgment because you come from the wrong viewpoint. That's what I would be.
6: Against. Well, I would argue that being secular is a religion in, 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 in itself, so to speak. I mean, that, w- that was my point. Why, why should someone has a worldview that doesn't include God, which in effect is its own worldview, impose that as a gatekeeper on me? Well, I think that it's important to
2: emphasize. <laughs> That the secular doesn't have to be anti-religious, at least when we talk about secular reasons. We're talking about considerations that can be seen to be evidential without depending on theology. But they may be reasons that can also be seen to be evidential from a theological point of view. One other comment.
6: Why does it make a difference if it depends on theology? Uh, Pardon me? Why does it make a difference? Oh, it it makes a difference.
2: It makes a difference for a free democracy because we have different theologies, and our capacity to iron out differences that come from our theologies uh, is hampered in ways that our capacity is not hampered when it comes to findings of fact, a point in the law as well as in uh, the theory of knowledge. So you do not believe that secular should
6: be a, a gatekeeper.
2: Uh, The gatekeeper analogy, like the pre-screening analogy, I reject. I'm not proposing any such thing. I'm proposing that we have in common perception, memory, intuition, standard inductive and deductive logic. Those things cross the religious traditions and they're a meeting point from which we can compare notes, whether theologically or otherwise. Even a theology has to use some kind of logic. Perception is always crucial. It's even crucial in mystical experience.
0: All right, final words? So just
2: on this point, I think most of
4: the people that are taking the position of of the self-restriction would include other comprehensive views, including atheism and other things. If what you were arguing depended... Definitely on uh, an atheist view of the world, that would be knocked out. Also, what's supposed to be left are sort of shared ways of understanding and ways of determining facts that are that are shared by the population generally. That's the idea. The idea isn't to stick religion out here and treat everything else differently.
5: I'm afraid I don't. I haven't
6: seen it that way. But thanks, guys. We
5: have one, we have one final comment here.
0: <laughs>
3: I, w- I was just going to say that not only do we have many different theologies we have many different perspectives of all of all sorts and the idea that there's some shared perspectives that we all have I think is a contradiction of, uh, of the of the fact of life in, in, a, in a pluralistic republic and there's no more reason to think that we should look for a shared you know perspective of a secular sort than of, of a religious sort I, I, the Democracy is all about discussing dis- discussions and coming to determinations. Given that we don't agree about the premises, and sure, there are going to be facts behind religion as well as uh, religious ideologies as well as secular ideologies. Proceed from facts. They proceed from authorities. They proceed from experiences, and uh, uh, they all do. And I just don't think that any of them are privileged.
0: All right. With that, we will have to conclude. Our thanks to the panel.